You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. When Christopher Columbus and the Spanish first arrived in the New World, they spoke of the indigenous people of the Americas as having no religion at all, no knowledge of God, but as being wholly irreligious. Now, of course, the indigenous people here had rich spiritual lives and traditions, but because their spirituality looked nothing like Western European Christianity, it went totally missed, ignored, misunderstood, unseen. The the native people of these lands, the Americas, uh, were labeled religionless and godless because their traditions did not make sense to Europeans or to the European Christian worldview of the colonial era, late Middle Ages, early modern age. According to Tink Tinker, a contemporary indigenous religion scholar and member of the Osage Nation, indigenous religions were generally fully integrated into daily activities. Everything was seen as a kind of spiritual practice, hunting, fishing, cultivating crops, building shelters, etc. The, the indigenous worldview doesn't separate life into categories of secular and sacred, religious and non-religious, at least not like we modern Western or, or Christians do. This is why indigenous religions went unnoticed by the first Europeans when they first arrived, quote unquote, here. I, I share this today as an example for how Christianity invented the modern concept of religion as we know it, meaning this, this concept of religion as a separate and distinct category of life, a category that basically looks like, well, European Christianity. And you know, any religion or form of spirituality that doesn't fit that mold often is not seen as religious or religion at all. This is something imperialist and there, there is something imperialist and reductionistic about this, of course, this need to clearly define what is religion and what is not and define it and define it according to the Western European model of Christianity. And this entire approach is, of course, deeply flawed, especially when one understands that there is no single correct definition of religion. One of the definitive texts on religious studies over the last century is called the Psychological Study of Religion, published in 1912. It lists 50 different definitions of religion. One way of looking at that is to say that, well, this means that religion is undefinable, and that's kind of true. Another way of looking at it is to say, no, it's quite definable. It's just that there's countless definitions, and I actually like and prefer that that latter look at it, that there's countless definitions of religion, all equally valid in their own right. It's not that religion is impossible to find, it's just that there's countless definitions. Consider Wikipedia's definition of religion. 
which is, I share it simply as a good example of just how nebulous a concept religion actually is. It says this, religion is usually defined as a social cultural system of designated behaviors and practices, morals, beliefs, worldviews, texts, sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, or organizations that generally relates to humanity to supernatural, trans transcendental, and spiritual elements. However, there is no scholarly consensus over what precisely constitutes a religion. That's how the article begins. If you go online and look up religion on Wikipedia, that's how the article begins, and it's very long, right? Some define religion as the belief in ultimate reality, a metaphysics. Others, like Paul Tillich, who I really like, define religion as ultimate concern. Whatever you are ultimately concerned about functions as a kind of religion. Or religion is the search for ultimate meaning, that that's what religion is. The definitions are endless, and we're always coming up with new ones, like, like, uh, like this one that's popular today that I'm sure you've heard before and maybe even said yourself. I'm spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> You've heard that, right? And I'm sure there was a time when I said that. But, you know, ironically, as Peter Rollins likes to point out, that's a very religious thing to say, actually. It's just a different definition of religion to say I'm spiritual, but not religious. And generally what people mean by that, I think, in my opinion, how I understand them, is that, you know, they're they don't really want to be a part of any quote unquote organized religion, but they don't believe in nothing, right? They, they believe in something, but they're not quite sure what maybe, but, and they don't want to really get bogged down in all of the, you know, parochial and narrow definitions of who God is and what it means to be spiritual that's often trafficked in the quote unquote, you know, mainstream religions. So they, they still feel like they're connected to something bigger than themselves. They still feel like they're connected to something we would say transcendent or sacred or you know, beyond. And, and that gives them a sense of whatever, I don't know, peace. But that's what in general I think people mean when they say I'm spiritual but not religious. But again, this is just in a way just another definition of, of religion. Another definition that's quite popular specifically in the church, evangelicalism, and I'm sure you've heard this one before too, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a what? A relationship, yeah, exactly. I'm confident I said that one before, it's been years. But, uh, but this, of course, is just another definition of, of religion, right? What I want us to take away from all that is, is not just this idea that religion is simultaneously undefinable and yet definable in a myriad of ways. But what I want us to see is that all of life, all of life is a potential religious expression. But in order to do that, we first need to deconstruct and unlearn this one-dimensional and myopic understanding of religion that the church has handed to us since the Middle Ages. This is an understanding that most people in the modern world I would venture to say. Most people in the modern world, Christian or not, this is an understanding of religion that's just taken for granted as factual and universal. 
I think if you were to ask most people, like the man on the street interview, ask most people, what is religion? You're going to hear something that sounds a lot like traditional Western European Christianity as we've known it since the Middle Ages. This meaning religion is a system of beliefs and practices that people engage in to connect with God. It's something you do in private or something you do on Sunday mornings. It's something that people choose to engage in or not. And therefore, there are things that are clearly religious and things that are clearly not. I think that's generally how most people today would define religion. Um, and I think most people take that basic definition of religion as universal and timeless. But the problem is it's not really universal or timeless. It's, it's a relatively recent invention that actually came out of the medieval church. So when I say today that Christianity invented religion, that's what I mean. I don't mean that Christianity invented you know, the idea of God or that Christianity invented religious rituals or concepts like the afterlife or the spirit world or the supernatural. Those ideas obviously predate Christianity and came to exist in cultures untouched by Christianity. So when I say that Christianity invented religion, what I mean is that Christianity more or less invented our modern Western concept of religion as a separate and distinct category of life, meaning separate and distinct from the so-called secular parts of life. That's pretty much a Christian invention, that idea. In fact, it was during the birth of the modern era in the late Middle Ages that the word religion was first used to define the authority of the church as separate and distinct from the so-called secular and civil authorities, which is a good thing, by the way. I want to be clear about that. To, to be clear, this distinction between the secular and the religious is not all bad. Such distinctions gave us the separation of church and state, which I'm really glad about. I'm glad we don't live in a theocracy. At least I don't think we do. Uh, and we owe that to the church and Western culture to a great degree. But this compartmentalized understanding of religion as, as that which is separate from other parts of life, this idea goes at, goes at least back to the 11th century, when, uh, when the church created two different categories of clergy. There were religious clergy and there were secular clergy, and actually that's still the case today within the Roman Catholic Church and I think some other Christian traditions, high church traditions that actually have priests. There is secular clergy, and then there's religious clergy. But this began in the 11th century. Secular clergy were ordained clergy, but they didn't belong, and even today don't belong to any religious order, like a monk or a priest does. Nor did secular clergy take vows of chastity or poverty, like religious clergy did. Secular clergy don't administer the sacraments, don't manage the affairs of the church. Um, instead, they fun their, their function was to care for the practical needs of the parish, care for the practical needs of the congregation, meaning engaging in, in charitable work, feeding the hungry, these kinds of things while holding secular jobs, thus the term secular clergy. This is actually the root of the term secular. It goes back to the 11th century goes back almost a thousand years. And ironically, this idea of the secular is a Christian invention. 
Next time you hear a Christian, you know, crying the the horrible things about the secular world, you can remind them or point out to them and, and sound very astute doing so that the, the so-called secular world is a Christian invention going back to the 11th century. We created that. We bifurcated the world that way. The medieval church did, which is fascinating, I think. And this division between the so-called secular and religious only expanded, only became more prominent as the Middle Ages gave way to the modern world or the modern era. The church basically reacted to modernity, meaning the scientific revolution and the age of enlightenment, what happened in the 17th and 18th century, mostly in Western Europe. The church basically reacted to modernity with deep fear and distrust. Think of the church imprisoning Galileo, right, for teaching heliocentrism, that the earth goes around the sun, putting him under house arrest, right? The church banning Copernicus's books. Right? The church basically reacted to modernity, the age of enlightenment, uh, with deep fear, deep distrust. Thus, this wedge between the so-called secular world and the religious world became more distinct from the 17th century on. The church saw itself and continues to see itself, even today, in large part, engaged in a battle and a so-called culture war with the so-called secular world, secular culture, and, and secular understandings of reality. But the seeds of this battle were actually planted by the church itself, cultivated by the church over, over the centuries. As the world modernized and the church felt its power slipping away. And yet to be clear, I think the Christianity that we actually find in the first century church and in the writings of the New Testament and in the teachings of Christ, that Christianity is not like this version that we've inherited from the medieval church. That Christianity, what we might call primitive Christianity, by that I don't mean primitive in a negative way, I just mean as, as close to the original form of what we find in Jesus' teachings as possible, that Christianity is deeply affirming of this idea of you know, religion as a way of life rather than a system of beliefs and traditions and rituals compartmentalized from the rest of life. You know, consider Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He tells her, the day is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, no longer will the true worshipers worship the Father on this mountain in Jerusalem or in that mountain, meaning that temple in Samaria or this, this temple in Jerusalem, but the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth, which I take to mean as a kind of way of life and a, and a, and a way of living, you know, out of love and compassion and the virtues that Jesus emulated and gave to us. Or consider Jesus himself. He was, of course, a Jew. And according to the four gospels, he never distinguished himself or his movement as anything other than Jewish. I think that surprises a lot of Christians. He never, he never claimed to be launching a new religion. He, didn't think, he wasn't thinking like that, obviously. In fact, the, the label Christian didn't, didn't get created until approximately 50 years, 50 years, we think, after Christ. I like how Bonhoeffer put it. 
I like the way Bonhoeffer puts a lot of things, <laughs> but I like how Bonhoeffer put it this way. Christ called people to life, not to a religion. Christ called people to life, not to religion. I think that's really true, which is also ironically for our purposes today, a really religious thing to say, because we have a, a very broad definition of religion we're working with here, right? But that aside, something happened in the Middle Ages. Something happened in the church in the Middle Ages where all that got left behind for the sake of building an empire and clearly defining who was in and who was out, who was a Christian and who was not, who was godly and who was godless. What was secular and what was sacred? The, all those binaries became the impetus or the focus and the ramifications for all these binaries and bifurcations are far-reaching. According to Daniel Boyeran, Daniel Boyeran, a very prominent contemporary Jewish scholar, he says this, the concept of Judaism as a religion is an idea largely invented by the church. Judaism, in scare quotes, Judaism is not originally a Jewish term. The term is not found in the Torah or any Jewish writings prior to the modern age. Instead, Jews talk about the people of Israel, about Hebrews, about the Israelites, but not about any sort of faith-based or theological structure. There is no Judaism that believes in one thing or another. There is no the essence of Judaism. Those attributes emerged only when modern Jewish communities were compelled to define themselves when they, along with the rest of Europe, went through modernity over the last four or five centuries. So according to Boyerin and other Jewish scholars, the very notion of Judaism as a, as a religious construct, as a separate and distinct part of life that is separate and distinct from other parts of Jewish life or sociocultural heritage, that is largely a Western European Christian idea born out of the late Middle Ages. Isn't that amazing? Think of it like this. Imagine meeting a member of the Navajo tribe and asking them, what is Navajoism? <laughs> you would probably be met with a perplexed stare. Think of whatever indigenous nation, you know, Hopiism. Imagine asking a member of the Hopi tribe, tell me what Hopiism is. You know, you'd probably be met with a, a perplexed stare because there is no such thing as Hopiism or Navajoism, I'm told. The unique spiritual and social cultural heritage of the Navajo people is not reducible or extractable from the rest of what it means to be a Navajo. A non-Navajo like you and me cannot just convert to the Navajo religion uh, as if being a Navajo is somehow separate uh, and distinct from practicing the Navajo religion or Navajo spirituality or having a Navajo worldview. The idea that it's possible to do that, you know, convert to Navajoism without actually being a Navajo yourself, the idea that it's possible to do that is a very Western, modern, and a very Christian idea. When, when you think about the way that we Christians have talked about you know, our religion over the centuries, think about it. We've been going around the world for centuries telling people 
you need to convert to our religion. You know, Europeans have been going around the world for centuries saying that to people in all the far-flung corners of the world with all these unique social, cultural heritages and worldviews going there and saying, you need to convert to my religion, which of course at the time was never understood as, and it, it was this as well, but it wasn't understood this way, as you need to convert to being a Western European. <laughs> but that was, we now know through the studies of, you know, anthropology and sociology, which are fields, what, about 100 years old, we now know through the social sciences that you can't actually go around the world and convert people to just this religion without also converting them to kind of Western European cultural, you know, heritage and worldview. Christianity always comes packaged along with these things. But of course, we didn't get that until the last hundred years or so since the birth of the fields of anthropology and sociology, et cetera. I'm, I'm not saying that European Christians were the first or the only ones to ever proselytize and convert others to their religion. I'm reminded of, of course, Islam has been doing this at least since you know the eighth century. Keep in mind, Islam might have learned this from the church. <laughs> it too is one of the Abrahamic faiths that was the last one after you know, Judaism, Christianity, right? But as far as Western history goes, and that's what we're talking about here, I want to be very clear about that. As far as Western history goes, the church invented that concept of religion as something separate and distinct from the rest of a culture that you could extract and convert people to. And this became the way the church looked at all religions everywhere. It's like the old adage, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? To, to the church, you know, all these world religions were thought of kind of the same way. This became the way the church looked at all religions everywhere, everywhere as simply theological constructs, systems of beliefs and rituals, you know, that you could swap out for others that were separate and distinct from the rest of life, the rest of a culture, again, that you could swap out with Christianity. But this is not necessarily the way things had to go for us Christians. Because as I said earlier, the teachings of Christ and the earliest expressions of Christianity that we find in the New Testament are not teaching this bifurcation between the secular and the sacred, the religious and the non-religious parts of life. Not really, at least in my opinion. You can disagree with me here in a minute. <laughs> the incarnation itself, the incarnation being Jesus, you know, the incarnation itself is predicated on this idea that heaven and earth have been merged in Christ. The human and the divine are made one in Christ. God became human in order to show us that being human is divine. Jesus taught us that when we, when we care for the least of these, we are caring for him. We're caring for God himself. God is present in our midst, the form of our neighbor in need, especially pressed, the marginalized, the outcast, the downtrodden the poor, that it literally, as my mic cuts in and out, literally God in our midst, according to Jesus in Matthew 25. James tells us, pure and undefiled religion is this, and that word religion in the Greek means acts of worship, not like a 
robust system of belief like we think about it in the West. But pure and undefiled religion is this. Pure and undefiled worship is this, to care for the widow and the orphan, to practice justice. The Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Amos, and Micah echo this as well when they say that love and justice is true religion. The point is the church didn't have to go the direction it did by bifurcating, bifurcating the world into these categories of secular and sacred, the religious and the non-religious. And I'd like to think that we're correcting that today in our so-called deconstruction. We are hopefully deconstructing and unlearning this definition of religion as a separate and distinct category of life. We are hopefully, hopefully learning to see the divine and the sacred everywhere and in everyone. This strikes me as a deeply Christian idea. Some call this a decolonized theology. Maybe you've heard that term before, a decolonized theology. And I like that. It's a theology and an understanding of Christianity that is decolonized from its Eurocentric roots, from this colonial and imperialistic roots. The more we can decolonize Christianity from all that, the better, in my opinion. And so as we transition into a time of receiving the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to meditate on this idea of you know, deconstructing that binary, wherever it exists for you, maybe in your own beliefs or, or ideas about what religion is or what Christianity means for you. Because here we have in the sacrament, I mean, we're told this is symbolic of Jesus's broken body and blood, the, the, the very body and blood of God incarnate here before us. And we, of course, receive that into ourselves as a witness and a testimony that we become Christ's presence in the world. We become the presence of God. This is mystical. It's a very deeply mystical idea. And even the term mysticism itself, whether it's Christian mysticism or otherwise, has to do with this idea of becoming one with the divine, becoming one with God or the transcendent, however you think of it. That's what this sacrament is really about in so many ways. Ending this kind of bifurcation, this, this binary thinking about us and God and God and the world. Receive these elements into you and into your body as a way of meditating on this theme. So as always here, um, I think everybody understands how this works, but in case you don't, you're invited forward as just a minute, take a cracker, gluten-free and some juice and go back to your seat with it and receive it when you're ready as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So I as always want to open it up for questions or comments, uh, disagreements. It can be anything, you know. Um, does anybody have any questions about this 
this talk today about um, you know, how Christianity invented our modern Western concept of religion. Does it make sense? <laughs> do you agree? Do you disagree? What are your, any thoughts about that? Or we can um, get to a discussion question. Anybody uh, on Zoom, Bob, say anything? That's cool. Um, I'm curious also about if anybody wants to share how their particular understanding of religion has changed maybe over the years, how they have come to maybe understand, um, you know, what I was talking about today. I assume a lot of you are kind of where I'm at on this, that, you know, our faith or our spirituality isn't like this bifurcated thing anymore, but we feel like, you know, the presence of God and the presence of the divine hopefully are somehow merged into the way that we live our lives, or the way that we see the world, or the way that we experience the world. I'm curious, you know, um, if anybody wants to share about that, like how that, how they kind of came to understand it that way. Yeah, Cassandra. Hello. Hello. Um, the first thing I wanted to share when you were talking about the division, how they separated religion from life, made me think about school and how the schools have separated all the academics into separate subjects when really they all go together. You know, sure. you can't cook without math and you can't do science without math. And um, it's interesting because by dividing it, it they've almost made it harder um, for, mm. for people, I think, to learn because when it's all together and you can follow your interests, there's more joy there yeah, than when you separate it out. Yeah. So that was my first thoughts when you were talking was how we've done the same thing with school. We've tried to separate it all out. Yeah. Um, Growing up, I, again, I grew up in the Bible Belt, but I didn't go to church. And I had really negative views of church because of the kids I went to school with. Um, I was told often that I wasn't good enough because I wasn't religious. Um, even in college, I had one of my best friends was very concerned that we wouldn't be together in heaven because I hadn't taken the steps. Right. Um, which was just terribly offensive to me. So I just grew up seeing religion as this thing that you had to convert and you had to be a certain way to be a part of. And then as I grew up, I had some really scary things happen to me. And I went, I went looking for God because I thought maybe I had strayed too far. Maybe that's why these things had happened to me. And then we actually moved out here and when Marley was younger, we sent her to some Bible camps because it was a very affordable summer summer yeah, camp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we went to the end of the week ceremony, and I I cried mm. because there were these teenagers on stage saying that everyone was welcome and that God loved everyone, and it didn't matter what you believed. God was there for you, and I was like, oh, this is the message that we needed to hear that I needed to hear growing up. And so it was this sort of awakening that there was another way and it wasn't just how I had seen it when I was growing up. Um, wow. And then I further changed my views coming here. You know, when I started to come here, it was just to be with my father, yeah. to spend a little time with him. Um, but listening to you and, and, this group is so wonderful, right? Like uh, to have non-believers and believers and just this conversation time, I find myself wanting to invite others to come, but I still have this 
you know, from growing up that I'm afraid to tell people I go to church yeah. <laughs> because it just sounds so weird, yeah. but, uh, I just it thought does I sound would, weird. It sounds weird. I thought, I thought I would share, yeah, yeah. share those thoughts. Oh, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Thanks, Cassandra. Yeah. And I was, um, thinking when you were talking, you mentioned something that made me think like, you know, the way that so many of us grew up, I grew up being told, you know, don't listen to secular music. Right. And, uh, watch out for your secular friends because they'll lead you astray. And, um, you know, some of us grew up with that. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us grew up in that kind of very bifurcated world, right? And um, I wonder sometimes if, you know, when you look at what's, what's going on in conservative Christianity, aka evangelicalism, that there is this desire to, you know, win the culture war or to affect change in the culture and in some ways, I, I don't think even evangelicals separate themselves completely from the so-called secular world because they want to influence it, right? And they want to bring God's will to bear on it. And even there's this eschatological hope, meaning this desire to affect change in the so-called secular world in order to, quote unquote, bring God's kingdom, you know, to bear, but also to usher in the second coming. And so I think even in the very bifurcated world that I grew up in, there were these points of overlap where, you know, the so-called secular and the religious or the, the secular and the sacred world met, you know. Of course, it was always to get the secular world to be more like the church, um, you know, to adhere to the theology of the church. Uh, anyway, it's just interesting how that works out. But uh, other, other thoughts about this today? Um, your journey through um, your, your changing thoughts about religion and its place in life. Hi, Aaron. Hey, who's that? Randy. Hi. Hey, Randy. Uh, I had a quick question. Um, at one point you talked about, you know, the church um, converting people, mm -hmm. going out proselytizing. I wonder, did that start when it said, is it the book of Acts where it says, go out and preach the gospel to every creature? baptizing them in the name is that where that whole idea yeah. have to convert everyone that's a great question you, you know, know i i think this has always been part of christianity this call to make converts i mean think about mm. you know paul's damascus road experience but it, it, i'm speaking extemporaneously now and i haven't given it a ton of thought it it strikes me that that the idea of discipleship and the idea of conversion aren't necessarily the same thing in the way that um, maybe it was thought of 2000 years ago in, in the, you know, in, in the, in the near East and in the early church, the way that we think of conversion now. Um, I don't know. That's an, that's an interesting question because Jesus in a sense, didn't, he called his disciples to go and make other disciples. But when you think about what discipleship meant in Jesus's day, it wasn't mm -hmm. about adhering to any kind of theological orthodoxy. Where did Jesus teach his disciples about the virgin birth? Or, you know, you got to believe in these 10 things about God and you got to, you know, go to, you know, jump through all these religious hoops. If anything, Jesus was actively uh, what we would say today, you know, deconstructing those, I, those barriers between God and his people by showing people that ultimately discipleship and doing the will of the father is caring for the and practicing love and justice, that that was conversion, that that was discipleship. It wasn't, and Jesus was a Jew speaking to other Jews. He wasn't launching a new religion, right? He wasn't converting people to a new religion. 
he was calling people again, as Bonhoeffer put it to life. He was calling people mm -hmm. to life, life in, in the virtues of love and justice and empathy, compassion, etc. So that's what conversion meant originally it was, it was repentance from evil and unjust ways <laughs> and mm -hmm. in converting to the Christ like way of living in the world, not necessarily to a set uh, to, a, to a religious system of thought or a theological construct. Theological orthodoxy didn't come to exist until the fourth century after the Council of Nicaea and the, and the bishops were forced to sign the creeds or on pain of execution or death and ratify it in their various churches. And that was the birth of Christian empire, what we call Christendom. But again, conversion meant conversion to a Christ-like way of living, not to a religion. And I think I think we've re, re, we are recapturing that in our quote unquote progressive Christianity. We're not, you know, trying to send missionaries around the world, converting them to a religious construct. We are hopefully calling each other and calling others to a Christ-like way of living in the world, which is true discipleship. Does that does that make sense, Randy? That's that I've kind yeah. of yeah. Go ahead. It reminds me of when. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and he says, go and do likewise. And when the woman um, washed his Jesus's feet with perfume and stuff, showing love, I think that's being of service to one another and being humble, I yeah. guess, yeah. is what Jesus was talking about and when he washed the feet of the disciples. You know, Peter is greatest among you, be servant of all, kind of comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's Christian conversion. I think that's Christian discipleship, period. Um, that's, yeah. Thank you for asking that question. That's a really good. Anybody else have thoughts about that? Yeah, Jason. My understanding is that the Great Commission account is also inconsistent in the Bible. And if you look at it in the different gospels, I think one or two of them, Matthew and Mark, are talking about going and preaching and baptizing and casting out demons and stuff. Hmm. And the other ones, including X, are saying more like um, when Christ died, everyone was forgiven. Go and tell everybody that they're forgiven. Or uh, it doesn't talk about conversion so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, just talks about sharing or um, expressing your faith or whatever. So the different writers had different uh, explanations. And I think there might be some, if not contradiction there, at yeah. least um, it's a little gray. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. The Great Commission is found, I forget. Is, is it in a couple of gospels, but it's not an it's in all four of them. It's in, in all a way. Four well, like as you said, it's it's not as clear. <laughs> two of them are like he's rising up into the heavens and saying, "Go convert everybody," and then other ones are like he preached for forty days with his disciples and taught them a bunch of stuff and then told them to go share the faith or whatever. Yeah. So it's it's contradictory. Yeah, yeah, and even baptism when when he says go and you know baptize. But that was understood as a Jewish ritual washing ceremony. I mean, it wasn't like this, like you're converting people to this other religion. It's like you're taking part of what it means to be part of this community. It wasn't like, yeah, it's. And in John and Acts, 
it's the they're talking about you were baptized by water now i'm going to baptize you by the holy spirit yeah so wait until that happens and then yeah you'll get power or whatever it's yeah. not a necessarily commandment to go don't get immerse water. people in water and it's interesting that even paul in romans uh chapter two talks about how you know circumcision which of course in the jewish tradition is like I guess you could say for some Christians, it's sort of like analogous to baptism. Like this is the sign that you're the thing you have to do in order to be saved. One of the things, I guess. Um, but you know, of course. But but Paul was saying it was that that the this that those who follow the law who are uncircumcised will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. That true circumcision circumcision is of the heart. And he actually says it is spiritual, not literal. <laughs> So it's kind of like even that is a deconstruction of religious method for the sake of living out into this life of Christ. So anyway, it's, yeah, that's really that's really a good point. Uh, other thoughts about this? Yeah. Uh, Leanne, could you pass that down, please? Yeah, so just um, returning a little bit to the idea of the bifurcation of sacred and secular. Um, back in the day in New York, I was a freelance videographer for a number of very wealthy churches. Um, and one of them um, was a beautiful church in the Upper East Side, um, very um, well endowed, beautiful building, but they needed to raise funds to do some refurbishments because it was an old neo-Gothic kind of church, Presbyterian. Um, and they, I had to, I did a, you know, filmed this guest who came in and spoke he was, you know, from Oxford, just this really apparently well-known, and he talked, he did this talk on sacred spaces. Um, and the whole talk was about how churches are sacred and we have to, basically the implication because the ask at the end was donate to help bring our church back, which is, you know, fair. Um, but his whole talk was about Christian sacred spaces and how much they matter and how important they are. And then I remember at the end, there was a Q&A and a woman was like, what about pagan spaces? Like, what about what? Pagan spaces. Oh, pagan, yes. and she was like, is it the opposite? Like, are they less sacred? And he basically said, yes. He was like, if it's not Christian, if it's pagan, if it's like not about God and Jesus, then it's like an anti-sacred space. And everyone was like, yeah, like people were super excited. Um, <laughs> um, and I just remember like just sitting back there with the camcorder being like, and cut. Um, so I was, so it just was, it brought, it reminded me of that moment because it was so like secret spaces are more important than everywhere else. And they have to be a specific kind of sacred space. Otherwise they're actually like, you know, bad, like actively, you know, heathenistic. Um, and it made me very, very sad. So I hope that, I don't know, I hope that everyone in that room didn't believe that. Yeah, no, that's really, but that's really interesting. I mean, I remember even um, there's a specific verses in both Testaments that say that God does not inhabit a house made by human hands, right? This idea that the, the creator of the universe is housable in a building we create. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that, that's an idea refuted in both Testaments, I believe more in the New Testament as, you know, this notion of we become the temples, right? We become the temples of the Holy Spirit, the inner sanctuary, right? Where God dwells, that idea. But it's even found in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And yet, you know, there is this, I feel like 
there, there can be a way of being both and whereby we can have like a sacred space, but not like idolize it as being like, no, God is only founded here and not out there or something like that. But there can be, I think there's, there can be beautiful things about, you know, sacred spaces or sacred objects or something that we attach to your know, sacred practices, you know, that we attach to meaningfully without, again, idolizing them or fetishizing them in a way that's unhealthy, that denigrates you know, something else. Does that make, yeah, does that make sense? But again, that's kind of the tightrope we walk in deconstruction is learning how to do that. But um, that's a really good point. It's, it's disappointing that people do feel that way about their building. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't sell the church building or something like that because it's, you know, God's building or something. Yeah. yeah, like raise your money. Um, that's great. But like leave like Celtic pagan practices alone for a bit, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, good stuff. Um, anybody else want to share something this morning? Hello? Max, I, I see that hand at the mic. And somebody uh, on Zoom, did I hear a voice? <laughs> Was there somebody on Zoom that wanted to share? Hello. Hello. Uh, Hi, I'm Andre. Hey, Andre. <laughs> I don't have a lot to contribute to the conversation more than other more doubts. <laughs> so, um, I one idea that I kind of like have been struggling with, struggling with or has been on my mind for some years now is kind of like the conceit that I feel like maybe this is just my fault for internalizing it this way, but I feel like there has to be a belief when you, we choose to identify ourselves with a, a religion that that religion holds a better grasp of the under divine or a better understanding or a most true one. Hence, we choose to pursue that, right? Uh, otherwise, we would choose that specific religion. And I think I... Uh, but also by admission in our own uh, religion and in the Bible, there's the, for example, the mystery of the, the Trinity, right? Like we admit that we don't know, our minds are not, are too feeble to understand, you know, the full nature of our God. Hence this kind of like in my head opens the, the gates to a line of reasoning that, you know, uh, concludes, leads me to believing that, you know, other religions, capture different sides of God. I know I'm not, this is no, or nothing original, of course, but as I'm trying to uh, zoom out a little bit or like try to consider the viewpoints of multiple religions and kind of like a puzzle, try to put it together to have a better overview and a more comprehensive view on the divine, I find myself that I have a hard time being focused on the essence of, on the Christian religion identity mm. and as i zoom out it's hard to like keep track of like why i choose to be christian when it's the divine actually uh, it's more of a collage possibly of multiple religions seeing different aspects of the divine so i think like then it the conceit that uh i'm holding internally of like yeah i feel like my religion feels more christianity in general feels more most true as I choose to identify myself with it is kind of like the anchor that keeps me focused on Christianity but at the same time I'm kind of have a hard time reconciliating the idea that it's the universality and of how multiple religions may 
may represent the same God? And also, why do I choose my own in this big puzzle, if that makes sense? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing those thoughts. I, I, I feel like that you're obviously where a lot of us are at on that issue, specifically with how do we identify as Christians while still kind of like respecting, revering, and honoring the revelation of God in these in these other faiths. And I, again, I think I think you might have mentioned this. It's a little hard to understand because of the speakers here, um, but I th I think that there's something beautiful about being able to be open to the other and understanding um, or, or understanding that other faiths, other religions can express deep truths about the divine while also kind of embracing our own the other religions. Does that make sense? It's kind of like being, being, a, being a Buddhist, being a Christian, being a Muslim, can can be actually a very tactile way of being, you know, practicing spiritual traditions that allow us to be radically open. So in other words, we find our home within our traditions, but that actually becomes a way of actually helping us be more open. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm just, you know, practicing this religion here and it feels so isolated, but this can actually be a better way of embracing the larger whole by locating yourself in a particular tradition. Our traditions can actually be ways of opening us up, I think, more than closing us off. And again, it's a different perspective, but uh, Andre, that's kind of what I took away from what you said there. Hopefully I understood yeah. you. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the gist of it. Like we, I feel like we internally, we all hold the belief because it feels most true to us, our religion compared to others, right? And sure. that belief itself almost feels like a defensive mechanism sometimes for me of, hey, I, this is where I'm comfortable. And uh, I don't know how, I haven't quite found out my answer to how to reconcile that with yeah. a more universal view on God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you. Mac, do you have something? I'm just going to say real quick in response to the whole secular versus holy sacred spaces, something that it reminded me that stuck with me a long time. Our, our, our uh, dear friend Rob Bell right, has this line about Moses finding the burning bush. And as a, as a matter of his own little midrash, he, he, uh, Rob says, like, I like to think that the bush was always burning and it is always burning. And the difference is Moses stepping into a space and, and recognizing that the, that it's burning and recognizing that it's on fire. He's like, that's how I try to approach the world in the sense of it's not like God enters a space and makes it sacred and holy, but every space is holy and sacred if we recognize it. Um, so I, I just, every, every bush is burning. Yes, that's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's I what think he says. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's powerful. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you.